welcome back to another episode of the Buddhist Millionaire Podcast. I am more excited than usual, tell you about that in a second, but let's get the housekeeping done. As you know, this podcast is powered by little more than coffee. So if you want to buy me a coffee, you can do so at my Buy Me A Coffee page. The link is somewhere. Look for it. If you care enough, you'll find that link somewhere. Also, thanks to our podcast partner, Ferenz, the platform for podcasters who want to reach everyone. Thank you, guys. We love what you're doing. All right. Now, listen, today, my guest, really, is probably one of the most fascinating, strong, powerful women that I know in every sense of the word, right? And in fact, her interests are so varied that it's, you know, I write these intros, right? I like writing. That's what I do for a living. I'm a writer. So I like writing the intros. But my guest today is quite difficult to define because she's in a ton of different stuff, right? Which is really interesting. But I'm going to tell you what, I've known her a while. Explain in a sec how how I know her. But um, this post, which was a memory she reposted, was the thing that made me sit on the sofa and think, I'm going to speak to her. I'm going to ask her if she'll come on the show, right? So I'm going to read out a post. It says, eight years, eight years ago today, my sister Helen and I were sitting in our Wellington apartment having a documentary marathon. I know about those. I like a good documentary marathon. Anyway, one of those documentaries was about how a katana, katana, which is a samurai sword, uh, is made and then finished. Uh, fast forward to today, she says, living in Japan, studying and apprenticing in the art of sword polishing. That already is in my head. I just like katanas, me, sword polishing. I'm already there. Then she goes on to say, here we go. Sometimes life just makes you go, wow. Could I have predicted this? Nope. Do I love my life and what I do? Absolutely. I've got goosebumps saying that. Do I love my life and what I do? Absolutely. This journey has definitely been a lesson in going with the flow of life. If nothing qualifies you as a Buddhist millionaire, that's it. Please welcome my guest. Sarah McCann. Hey, Sarah. Hey, thank you. <laughs> Even oh, how awkward is that listening like, to me wow. saying that you're like an ambassador for women? Now you're like, let's stop this right now, shall we? <laughs> is that hard to hear? <laughs> it is hard to hear. It's like a little bit awkward. It's kind of, it's neat hearing your own words kind of, you know, spoken back to you. But yeah, it does make you think about it a little bit more. So, yeah, it's hard, right? Isn't it? Because I have had you are not the first person to have for me to play back what I've summarized as and then be uncomfy with that, because it's really hard for us to especially for givers. Right. It's really hard for givers. And I feel, you know, looking at your work, which we'll talk about in a bit, but I feel you give a lot and do a lot of charity stuff. You're giving, giving. Right. It's quite hard for givers to take back that they're doing a bloody great job. Do you do you find that? Yeah, maybe I, I feel because a lot of the things, you know, those so-called giving exercises where it's charity or, you know, helping people in, in whatever capacity, they're like, that's the reward enough. That's kind of why we do it. So to get anything on top of that kind of feels a little bit surplus or like, I don't know, unnecessary unless that's the right word, but yeah, yeah it's no, rewarding it's enough doing the, yeah, doing the, the giving or the helping. Yeah. yeah. That's a very good point, actually. And it's an even better point. That doesn't do any, that just goes on my other list of things while I'm fawning about you. Because, of course, so many people don't have that view, right? They're giving with one eye on, oh, how can I tell people what I've given? Or how can I up my likes? You know, that there is, unfortunately, there is a lot of that. And, and to hear that genuine yeah. givemanship, it's, uh, it's, it's very refreshing, actually. 
Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. We we are we do have those kind of conflicting um, thoughts when we're especially with social media because we want we have a lot of people contributing, you know, to some of the missions that we do. So we want to share it in some capacity. Yeah, sure. But it's that that balance of how do we share it and show these people that have contributed that they are, you know, and how to include people and show them that look, this is what you guys have enabled us to do. This is what you know kind of showing them some missions or um some of the things we've done like buying shoes for the kids yeah but yeah. actually yeah putting it out there and letting people know that this is because of you guys without looking like hey look at what we're doing yeah, look, look at us, it's, yeah. it's really difficult it's hard right it's a it's a fine line yeah. i think i i think about this a lot i really do think mm-hmm. about this a lot I, i've come to the conclusion for me at least right between me being an absolute ass and being a big head which I have that potential to go that way and trying to be genuine. I have to lie back and go at, at night and go, was I saying, cause I was sharing information cause I want to help others or was there something in the back of me just wants to go, look at me, look at me. You know what I mean? And With I think e- like, e- if I, coming into play. Yeah. Cause you, cause that's, I yeah. mean, that's quite common of martial arts, isn't it as well? I think it's, you know, there's something a bit dark about giving someone a smack and something in you wants to say you can do it. So we, I think as martial artists, we have that, potential but i know now at 48 if i like if i just go to sleep and think yeah am i am i just am i being authentic then i think we've got that yeah. line right i think yeah i think those self those self check-ins are really important that kind of keeps you accountable and to you know to yourself and your own kind of your own spirit yeah i think yeah, if, yeah. if you're not having these check-ins and just constantly putting out the stuff and not assessing where kind of like the root or the cause of or the you know why you're doing it yeah I think it's, yeah, it's really important to have those check-ins. With yeah, no, I agree with you. Regular, regular check-ins for sure. Uh, let me tell yeah. uh, listeners how we met, how you came into my life. So for you guys out there, I've always been um, a fan of Ensign. Ensign anyway, he's a bit of an MMA legend, actually. And one time, <laughs> I, and I, actually, I missed a step. I think I found, I think I got one of these, I was at a grappling competition, and Scramble, I think, this may be wrong, Sarah can tell me if I'm wrong, was selling his bracelets, the Destiny Forever bracelets at one point, long time ago. Anyway, I got one. I, I, I love, I just love them. Anyway, I got one and it was Ensign. And I had to have one, right? Anyway, I did. And then fast forward a little while and I thought I was writing my first book, The Hardest Path About My Pilgrimage to Japan. And um, I discovered that Ensign had done bits and pieces of it. He didn't do the whole thing at one go, but he'd done bits and pieces. So I thought in a moment of madness, why why don't I try and message him and see if he'll write the forward? I literally didn't think he'd do it. And he did. For those who've read the book, you'll see he's done the forward and he's actually um, done a couple of other things. He's been amazing, absolutely amazing. So he came into my life that way. And then by default, of course, then Sarah came into my life. So that's how we know each other, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah, that's right. Now, listen, you... Go on, sorry. Oh, no, sorry. I was just going to say that the pilgrimage, Ensign actually has done the whole, the first one he did the whole thing at one time. Did and he? the second one he did in stages. Did yeah. Wow, I miss it. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, that for me was life changing, as I'm sure. It, I mean, I know people say that some things are life changing, but it really did turn my life on a kind of 
on a, a dime. And I, I would say to anyone, have you done it, sir? Have you been out and done it? Yet? No, it's on my list. You got to do it. I've, I've been planning to do it. Yeah, I've been planning to do it for um, several years now, but it's been hard with the fighting and the, you know, life kind of gets in the way. So time is also a time, I mean, sorry, fighting is also a time sensitive activity too. So I'm trying to prioritize that a little more right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I'm not a spring chicken in the fighting sense. So how old are you? We're trying to. I'm 34 at the moment. I'll be 35 this year. Okay. So we yeah, kind, I mean, of, kind of prioritize that. It's, it's, a, it's a short window, isn't it? Um, yeah. Kind of that thing. Yeah. You know, there's only a certain amount of time you can kind of fight full time, really. Yeah. It's one of the yeah. things I want to touch upon. And one of the reasons you are so inspiring is because you live mostly in a very male-dominated world, right? I mean, MMA, for yeah. example... Not dissing Ensign, by the way, just to put that out there before I'm... <laughs> but, but a male MMA still is pretty much a male-dominated world, world, and certainly in Japan, I would say. And I just wanted to get into that first, because, I mean, it's not a, you know, we're around martial arts. Women in, in MMA is not new now, but for a lot of people listening to the podcast, it's still like, wow. And, and anyone who looks at your last 30 seconds with your fight, I think it was with Choi, just you guys just absolutely gunning each other, bam, bam, pop. You're thinking, <laughs> kidding me, right? Can you tell us about that? What is that like for a, for a you know, a woman fighting in MMA in a, in a largely kind of male-dominated environment? Well, to be honest, it doesn't really... It's not until people mention it or talk about it that I really think about it as a thing or like or an issue. But when I really sit back and kind of look at it and think about it, yeah, it is kind of it is, it is a thing. It is it is <laughs> kind of not as common as you know, or as I think it is. Like it's just so normal to me. Yeah. And I think that has a lot maybe to do with my upbringing as well. Um, and you You're from New Zealand, aren't you? New Zealand. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. I'm from New Zealand and my mum is Māori, which is the indigenous people from um, New Zealand. So mum's Māori and dad's white. But um, our Māori culture in my my tribe, my iwi, is kind of renowned for having really strong women. Right. And and growing up, like even my dad, my dad is like a male feminist. Like he's always would take us diving, um, like snorkeling and stuff. So we're really outdoors kind of kids. And... Like my grandfather was kind of more traditional, like, oh, the girls, you know, should stay at home and do this and that around the house. And my dad would just put his foot down and say, well, I'm not going diving without my girls. Nice. Kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really nice having had that influence throughout my whole, from childhood through to my adult life. There's been no girls couldn't do it Amazing. type of attitude. It's always been like guys, girls, whatever, like just, in, you know. Yeah, so it's just, it's just what you know it. that. That, yes. That's actually beautiful yeah. sentiment. It reminds me of one of my favorite, I think it was quite a small independent film. I think it was called Whale Rider, about Maori culture. Yes. Yeah. I, I absolutely yeah. I love the little girl in that film. And that whole, it's just the most fabulous, inspiring. You know, some things stay in your head and that film stayed. And again, just a pretty small budget film, but amazing, amazing, amazing film. I'll probably put that in the link to this. Okay, so that was your, so you, you've sort of grown up around strong women, really. Strong women, yes. I'd, I'd consider my mum a pretty strong like, personality yeah. as well. So, you know, she's always had that. If you want something, work hard and go go do it. And she's, yeah, she's quite a strong yeah. <laughs> strong lady. So, you know, I love her and appreciate her. So that's really good. And even having, um, again, like my dad 
drill that into us from a young age. Yeah, it's been nice having that having that support. Yeah. So yeah, it hasn't didn't really feel like an issue. Um, yeah, growing up, I suppose I had older brothers and a lot of cousins and stuff like that as well, and right. it was just all a big mix. And nothing was ever like we didn't we weren't very like well off growing up. So, but it was there was never anything off limits. Right. So if we had dreams, it wasn't, wow, like I wish I could do that one day. It was, wow, I, I'd like to do that one day. How am I going to do this? Like, what, love, what do I need I to do that. to do this? That, yeah. and that's a bit, and you, I mean, I, you know, a lot of my martial arts course, I taught children. And one of my, I, I tried to use martial arts to be that, to be a, a way of going, okay, it's not, it's not, there's your goal. And then how do we get there? Because a lot of the time people have their goal and then they've already shoved it away thinking, I can't get there. I love that. How, there's your goal. How yeah. do you get there? That's a great attitude, isn't it? I think sometimes people get hung up on, you know, self-limiting beliefs and they put their own kind of caps on things. Maybe just, you know, they'll jump straight to the, oh, it's not really realistic. And, yeah. and then it just goes it kind of down and into the negative from there. But it's, if you can just, flip things a little bit it yep. just opens up the possibilities to, to so much more avenues to to really do what you want to do yeah that's great advice what do you do to um do you ever get those kind of you know when you have a goal do you ever get those nagging doubts and if you do what do you personally do to kind of flip it back over and go right let's make this a doable thing rather than something you can't do yeah of course absolutely i mean especially in like in with fighting and you know, I don't get that, ah, oh, man, okay, I feel like I'm, I'm too old to make a run at this right now, or, right. you know, like I'm, with the pandemic, I'm struggling, I had struggled to get good training in, because we couldn't have, you know, be grappling with our partners, and yeah. so a lot of that, especially nowadays, can really get on, um, kind of get you down, and it kind of, journaling really helped. Journaling? Um, and sometimes, uh, journaling, yeah. I'm, I'm a big, big, big one for journaling, I think it's really important, Yeah. Eh? yeah. And sometimes it's not even, people think of journaling as like writing out, you know, long form, like paragraphs and pages. Sometimes it's that, but sometimes it's just brainstorming, just yes. brain dump, kind of getting things out of my head. Like, why do I, why do I feel like this? Why am I feeling limited by, by this particular thing? Okay. So how, what, so change that. So now that's become a little challenge mm -hmm. or a little, you know, a little roadblock. How do we get through that little roadblock? Mm. Is there another way to go around it, or do we have to solve that before we move on to the next step? Like, yeah, yeah, okay. that's a really good point. I often refer to that as dragging the monster from under the bed. You know, you may not know, but when mm. you, you know, when you're young, the the thing you can't, see, and that's how that's what horror is based on. The thing that you can't see, right? But once yeah. that thing is in front of you, you just go, okay, well, it's bigger. It's got eight legs, two heads, but I know now yeah. what that is. It's the unseen, isn't it? And I think that's what journaling is useful for. It brings out the muddle in your head is the unseen. But once you bring yeah. it out, you go, okay, well, that's hard, but it's something I can, and then back to what you said, I can goal set against. That's a really good point, journaling. Yeah, so that, that's really helpful. And also, you know, looking, I do like to read. but um, What sort of stuff do you want? What do you like? I like all sorts. I like kind of just, you know, trash novels just to get my brain off things. Yeah, but then absolutely. I also like delving into, um, you know, like stoicism and sometimes like Buddhism can be really interesting and just yeah. picking and choosing quotes because sometimes I'll find if I read through like a book, I start to kind of, it, my eyes glaze over. Yeah. In, in other words, that, yeah. you know, how that happens sometimes when you're reading. So 
I'd like to like read a quote or read something and think about it for a while. And then sometimes I just need a break from that because you get too deep, too stuck in your head. So I'll put that and that's when the trash kind of like fiction comes in. And yeah, yeah. so but lately uh, the book I've just picked up is actually one called um, Indistractable. So it's yeah, it's about um, you know, non-fiction or fiction? Non, non-fiction. Non-fiction, that one. Indestructible. Yeah, yeah. non-fiction. Indistractable. So about distraction. Oh, distractable. And, um, okay, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, so being able to kind of channel our attention more efficiently and use our, you know, our time a bit more effectively, because we've got so much, so many things going on, like whether it's, you know, computer, social media, like business training, whatever, and sometimes it can get a little bit overwhelming. Mm. So you kind of, like, you, you know, I'll procrastinate and not do things because mm. I just put it in the too too hard basket. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I'm kind of. I'm always open to learning, like, how do I optimize my, my thinking and my, my processes? I'm always, I'm always open. In no, fact, no, I just ordered your book today. <laughs> but, so it's only taken you a year. <laughs> no, no, the new one, the, um, the Buddhist Millionaire. I'm, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. Thank you. I'm only joking. <laughs> no, I, I, read the, I read the synopsis um, earlier today. Yeah. And I think, wow, actually, that's, because that's kind of how I think. Yeah, but I mean, it's based on that whole idea, isn't it, of, of there are two extremes. I explain it every podcast in case we've got newcomers who still don't know the concept of what I call Buddhist millionaire. So, so very quickly, I came back from the 88, yeah. right, with this these kind of spiritual insights. They're not mine. They're not my insights. My God, a million yeah. better people have said them before. I just happened to hear them on the 88 or feel them, right? So I wrote them down. That was, that was the hardest part. Fine. But then... I need, I wanted to ask, so in Buddhism, it's called coming down from the mountain, right? Where you go, well, fine. It's all very well being up here. Oh, I've had this insight. Oh, you, you know, time and money. But what happens when you get home to London and there's eight bills still on the, hang on a minute. I've just touched the hand of God. You can't send me bills. But they did. So then I start to think, well, how now can I get these lessons into my life and make money doing them? That's how Buddhist millionaireship came up. And it was, can you have a life that you love that also pays the bills? Because you're either sort of the broke creative or the, you know, the rich banker cliches, I know. Can we be something in the middle? And then my work was just based around that, which seems to me what you do. Yes, that's, I think that's what really kind of, actually, Ince and I were just talking about this today, yesterday about how obviously you know we're not we're not millionaires no. but we're getting by but we're we're so rich in happiness and we even talk about if we you know if we came into a sudden like a lot of money somehow yeah. we wouldn't actually change our life we'd That's be able it. to do things to help help more people maybe and you know maybe you know pay some bills a little easier but we wouldn't i'd still be doing the tohishi the swords the, the fighting like it would you have 100% got it that is pure buddhist millionaireship of course i use the term buddhist millionaire because you know your book needs a title right and but you're right it's that you don't have to be buddhist nor a millionaire it's that kind of internal meaning maybe spiritual doesn't have to be that is internally rich it can all there are people i've interviewed who, who are also buddhist and millionaires it can be but it doesn't have, you have got it exactly nice i'm so happy someone understands my book <laughs> <laughs> and it's but it's all it's all defined by the person right mm. 
is that how you would define it too? Like, so if, for everybody, it's all like, it's like a sliding scale. It depends yes. on the person and yeah. what they want in their life. Some people might want more money. Yes. Some and that's fine. Happy with less, but exactly. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's about, ultimately, I got it down to this. I got it down to when the alarm goes off in the morning, right? Do you go, can't be asked to get up? Or do you whip the covers and go, yes, I've got this part, right? And that's, that's what it is. But as you say, it doesn't write off the bank who wants to make a million. If that's what floats their boat, cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Equally, if someone just yeah. wants to, it's absolutely right. It's a, it's, a, it's a scale. It's an absolute spectrum and a scale. And I think ultimately what I found is that once someone follows their passion, people will agree with me. They'll go, oh, that's hippie. It's a bit too new age. Well, I found this. When you found, find your passion, you throw both feet in, something catches you financially skill information you bump into people you meet someone say yes they'll write forward to your book all that weird stuff happens when you commit do you have you found this or not or am i just making crap up yes no no it's just you're saying that and i'm kind of sitting here with my hands in my head kind of a little blown away little kind of laughing too because this is another conversation that we have because i came from kind of a corporate background where I was working the you know eight to five or nine to five in New okay. Zealand I didn't I, I didn't jumped. realize that actually yeah so, so I was I was working in New Zealand you know into my net you know I, I followed him across the ocean <laughs> to Japan and oh. I kind of dove into this lifestyle which flipped my whole thinking okay Just all over the place because it was all about you know kind of that working and being like having that security you know the, the kind of traditional mindset you yeah know? you get yeah. kind of as financially stable as you can and then yeah. and then you can enjoy things kind of thing but yeah, after it's the i can enjoy it after i once i've got yes. this i'll hop over the fence and start enjoying it that's essentially how we're schooled right yes, yes. but this you'll find never comes because no. you're always trying to set the bar a little higher or oh, maybe i can just push a little more you yeah. know so yeah. and you start as scary because you know you will end up being the richest man in the graveyard not having had you know enjoyed and lived life that i mean that is the great crime of modern societies just as you say and the buddhist and this isn't a buddhist podcast but and i and i just it's some things that buddhists have said just helped me to understand it but they there's this great story about the man who goes searching for the diamond that essentially was in his front garden you know, he goes around the world, comes back, comes back in his 90s, you know, happens to dig up his garden. I don't know why he came back and decided to dig up his garden. They didn't say that in the Zen parable. But anyway, he dug up his garden. There were the diamonds. And just as you say, you know, it's it's right with us. Um, and we're not taught to do that. And that's I mean, that's the method behind the Buddhist Millionaire podcast, the book itself. Uh, there's a weird thing, though, right, that I, my jury is out on what helps us why we have these fortuitous meetings, why you met Ensign and came across seas and left the corporate world and are doing what you're doing. But something helps us, doesn't it? Do you, what, tell me, what's your view yeah, on that? I don't know what it is. It's, no, it's, it's really, it's bizarre. Because even the way him and I met, and there were so many things leading up to that meet. So I met him at an MMA expo in okay. New Zealand. I was doing something like a, reporting on the New Zealand fight scene. It was right. kind of like a hobby um, web series that my friends and I did. Yeah. And there were so many things on both Ensign's side and my side that almost that led to us almost not going to the actual um, right. expo. 
Yeah. So the fact we even made it there was kind of incredible. And then, yeah, the, the fact that we, we met and, and kind of like, you know, hit it off like we did was kind of, neither of us saw that coming at all. It was Amazing. just, it's so bizarre, but it's, and even like having our backgrounds as well, like, and the age difference, because that's kind of often yeah, yeah. the elephant in the room too. There's almost a 20 year age difference between us. Yeah, yeah. But it, it brings so much interesting conversations into our relationship too, because of the, there's that generational difference, there's that cultural differences, but there's also a lot of similarities too. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the family values, that he was brought up with, I was brought up with. So there's a lot of that. Yeah. And even some of the, the the philosophical discussions that we can have about thinking and why things happen. And yeah. so yeah, we we do we have a lot of these discussions. No, no, I we, hear you. I, I just I I that's it was pretty similar with me and Sherry. You know, we're on uh we, we were both married before. I mean I'm not, you know, this is not a great expose, people know <laughs> but um we were both married before etc life life changed and switched and um it's funny how life just changes around right it's just how i mean i, I don't know my majority is still out on what it is i don't really I, it doesn't matter to me what people call it kind of serendipity yeah. chance god maths I, I i have no idea all i know is that so far in my own life when i've jumped in things have worked and then the amount of people I've spoken to, I think this whole project started selfishly to see if I could prove that what had happened to me happened to other people. I've now interviewed hundreds of people and those who've committed, something catches them, you know? Yeah. I have a question for you at the start, because when this kind of, when I started my journey, when I came to Japan, I was still kind of fighting it. Yeah. I was kind of fighting the process. I was trying to, um, you know, keep hold of the corporate world and keep like keep trying to um do things the traditional way sure. and I found it in the old camp as it so were stressful yeah yeah how about you did you when you kind of had dove into it did you dive straight into yeah, it yeah i'm sarah i'm a train wreck i'm an absolute train wreck <laughs> I, I offend and upset everyone around me because because this is it right so my first career was um uh i wanted to play pro tennis all i wanted to do was win wimbledon right a couple of things happened. I, I was um, I was okay. I was fine. I think, and I had to pay for coaching. It's sort of the same in MMA, right? You, you teach until you make the big money. You often are teaching or helping in camps to pay for your next fight and your travel. You know, the same sort of thing. It was the same in coaching. As it turns out, I loved teaching. Teaching was something that just lifted my whole soul. I just love it. It wasn't the case of, you know, those who, those who do, do those who can't teach. I just love teaching. And I was a much better tennis coach than I was player, actually, if the truth is. Anyway, so I moved from pro tennis to actually teaching. And then there came a time, this is my point about being a train wreck, where I didn't want to do that anymore, right? And I literally pretty much walked off the tennis court. I mean, not quite, but within 10 days. And I'd reached kind of a pinnacle. I was, I was the you know coach of the royal family. I was as high as up as you could get up in teaching. Not that matters, but what I'm saying is I was making good money. My parents were all going, that's great. You're doing really well. You're only 25, et cetera. And I went, I'm not doing this anymore. And I, I want to teach martial arts now. I, I'd, I'd done martial arts my whole life. It was sort of the background. So everything I've done, I, and the same with my martial arts now, when I wanted to write full-time, I went, uh, here's the school to my guys. I'm going to write full-time. So... I don't suggest people do what I do because 
people around you just go, what's he doing now? (laughs) (laughs) But for me, it's work that both feet, I I work better when I have to fight out of a corner, when I removed all of my um, safety nets. If I have a safety net, I suspect I'll take it. So when I cut them all, that's when God, that's when whatever, whatever you want to call it, that's when the help moves in for me. Yeah. Not sure I recommend that to people though. <laughs> well, it's, it is, it's really interesting. It's a bit mad. <laughs> One thing about you I, I really love, I have to say, and I was, in, I was of course, researching. And I, um, in one of your fights, you missed weight, right? And what I absolutely admire about you more than anything else, we know that missing weight is quite a big thing in the MMA world, right? And we know weight in women is a big thing, by the way, right? My, my, you know, I've had various people in my family who suffered eating disorders, etc. Right. My point with you, I saw this interview on T TV uh, New Zealand. I, I think it is TV NZ, right? And you're sitting there. What I really love is you don't duck anything. You were the one to explain to the interviewer, this is, this is not good. I probably put a black mark on my MMA card. And I love that so much about you that you just come straight at stuff. You don't hide. There's no excuses. It's just what it is. How, that's, that's pretty good. I think we need to learn to be honest about ourselves. Just as you said, checking in. Was that hard, to, hard for you to you know, for that to happen? No, I don't think it was hard at all. And I think that's, um, well, for a lot of people, I think that's what martial arts helps us to do mm. as well, is, is be more more honest, because mm. that's a lot of the, that's the martial way, you know, kind of some of those values that very you know, are trying to instill in us is that honesty, you know, with others, but with yourself as well. And yeah. it's almost by, by being honest and being straight up, that's already it's almost like they're like calling the elephant in the room it's it's putting it out there so you it's, it's just there it's yeah. there it's done like own up to it and kind of move on yeah not necessarily just kind of like shove it to the side but yeah it doesn't become this taboo subject or does that does that make sense no it, make you sense. know it and it actually it was the first lesson i learned on the 88 actually is that uh, you, you need to call what where your start line is it doesn't matter where your start line is. Your start line could be, I'm the worst tennis player on the planet. That's okay. Let's start yeah. there, right? Yeah. I, when I, I had, um, I had a, a guy who used to treat in shiatsu, I did Japanese acupressure, okay? I had some clinics. I was fascinated by, you know, mind, body. And so I studied um, shiatsu. And I, had a, and I was starting a little business here. Uh, I'm in Amman at the moment, I was in London. And I had a guy who I used to treat who was also kind of a business consultant, built businesses. And he just gave me free. I was young. I was like 26 or so. And he'd say to me, right, Matt, how's the business going? And I'd say, Jim, it's great. It's fine. Right. I mean, I had like four clients a week. That's not fine, is it? That's not really. <laughs> but he wouldn't let me out of his room until I wrote down how many clients I had. And I'd try and bluff around, not lie. I didn't lie, but I was like, no, it's fine. You know, a guy left the message on my, I've just got to get back to him. And, you know, I tried to puff up yeah. my, my success, if you like, until he wouldn't let me off the hook. And I learned from him, actually, and then from the 88, just be honest where your start, it doesn't matter where your start line is, how yeah. low, yeah. because you can, only, yeah. you can only come off your start line if you know where it is. And that honesty yeah. is true, isn't it? It's very important. 
It is. And I, I think a lot of that, that not being honest comes from our like that human kind of quality of just comparing yourself to others. Uh, yeah. So like in, in your case, it would have been, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm just taking a stab, you know, you, you don't want to appear like you're not doing so well. Yeah. That's yeah. absolutely yeah. 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 And the same thing with, you know, online, especially with social media now, because because everybody puts it all out there and yeah. some people can get caught in that trap of comparing themselves with others. Ah, oh, they've already done this at that age. And, yeah. oh, you know, I don't know if I should be doing this. And that's such a dangerous road to go down and dangerous energy to feed off. So it really yeah, is. Yeah, you have to be careful of that. Yeah. Tell me a little bit, Mel, because I did not know about your corporate background first. Tell me a little about that. That's really interesting. I had no idea that you had that world first and kind of went, oh, I'm not doing it. Wow. Tell me about that experience. <laughs> I had a normal life. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, so I did. Um, like I, I had, I worked in an online accounting software company just in the um like first in the customers and care and then I moved over to the marketing department mm -hmm. and it was really I really enjoyed that job it was really interesting um and then yeah at the, at the time I was actually doing Muay Thai and kickboxing um, okay. on the side so I, I had like a, a handful of like, amateur fights um in New Zealand so I was already kind of really interested in in martial arts and yeah. doing that but nothing beyond amateur I think so mm -hmm. I'd actually had also planned to move the company to, they had a, they've got an office in Milton Keynes. Oh, sunny Milton Keynes, that, gra that grand yeah. center of the universe, Milton <laughs> bloody Keynes. <Yeah>. I, <laughs> don't you? The land with the land with a thousand roundabouts that just go straight. That is all Milton Keynes <laughs> is made of roundabouts and industrial place. Uh, don't even get me started on Milton Keynes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of the, the one of the, my long-term plan at the time, obviously before I'd met Ensign. And then, yeah, I met Ensign, dove head first and, you know, my whole world flipped into, wow. you know, this awesome journey. It, it uh -huh. really has been a ride. And I did have that, yeah, that pushback, like I was saying earlier, um, when I did jump in and especially moving to Japan, like I couldn't work for a while. So I had to kind of rely on Ensign supporting me yeah. and having been kind of, independent and self-sufficient yeah for so long it, that was really hard for me so that was another lesson and you know having to talk to my ego and setting my ego aside and saying like look well yeah. he's my partner this is what partnership is it's yes. that yes supporting each other when we need it and leaning on each other when we need it so that was a really interesting lesson and every now and then that still bubbles up that kind of that, that ego that's hard right i, I i'm in that i'm in that now so we've come here oh, yeah. right now, literally right now. It's the thing that sometimes wakes me up at four, about 11 minutes past four in the morning where I, it's always the same time that I wake up thinking about that. I don't know why. Anyway, so we've come here to Amman for a couple of years. Sherry's uh, an early years teacher and she's always wanted to, her mum's lived here in Amman for 17 years or so. 
So we've been coming back and forward 17 years just for holidays. Anyway, Sherry's always wanted to work in the Middle East just to take a break out. So I thought, right, well, I'm going to write full time. And, and, you know, I really like to bury myself first into the craft and then get a move. And, and as I already said, I jump in two feet. So I thought I'm just going to come and write. So essentially, Sherry's paying for our lives right now. We're living off her um, until I, you know, until I start succeeding. And, I, you know, as far as making a proper living from it. Um, and I've, I just, I've never not had my, I've never not had money. I've always yeah. done okay. I've never not, I mean, not masses, but I've, I've never had yeah. that. And uh, You've yeah, been okay. some, yeah, I've been yeah. okay. And sometimes it just freaks me out a bit. I'm like, I realize that Sherry's paying for our whole lives until my writing career takes off. And my, most times I'm fine. She says the same as you, you know, that's what partners do. We're, we're, we're married. That's what, that's what they do. But sometimes it just, yeah, a little bit of me gets all a bit blokey and oh, I should be paid, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I understand 100% how you feel. <laughs> yeah, it's just, and I mean, even like sometimes because we've, we talk about these things too because, you know, it's part of that partnership and communicating and, yeah. you know, holding, like you don't want to hold these these feelings and because it could turn into kind of like resentment or, you know, it, so it's, healthier to just to talk about it and you know sometimes you know it will just say you know stop being silly you know that you know you're letting your you know your thoughts get away and you say we'll talk about it and yeah. you know and then when it comes when I come back around to it I realize you know my ego is just kind of piping up and yeah yeah, yeah. it's an interesting yeah. thing you go in fact that that was the other thing of course that you know the five monkeys rash guard I had designed that I sent to yes. you and Ensign did the voiceover for yes. but all joking aside that was just about that journey about those monkeys that come in and they sort of sabotage and they get in the way of that central spirit fighter because that they it's a real problem thoughts are a real problem for people they if anything gets in the way it will be thoughts that you can't not suppress but control or at least maneuver yeah. tricky channel somehow channel, channel exactly yeah. And you yeah, must, as, yeah. as, a, as a martial artist, you have to be able to do that, right? You know, standing across the ring from someone else or the case from someone else who actually wants to come in and, you know, give you a good hiding. That's, that's tough. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? Yeah, no, it, it is. It's the actual fight itself. I dread the training more than the fight. Do you? To be honest, because the, the training, I mean, you, you, you're preparing for war, you're preparing for battle. That's where all of the hard work and everything has come in so that you're ready for that battle. So oftentimes, I, I'm sure other fighters probably feel the same. When they get in the in the ring or the cage, they're kind of, it, I don't know, like it's fun, but that sounds kind of weird, but it's, it's more of a relief. Like you've made it through camp and you're yeah. here and you're ready. Yeah. But um, yeah, and just that idea of somebody else has trained, you know, hopefully just as hard as you to come and, do the same thing to you there's yeah. something really primal and raw about it yes and um you just have so many different thoughts and emotions going through your head you know those monkeys that the thoughts in your head and you got to somehow you know tell, tell them to sit down and be quiet and you, you got to focus and, and do what you got to do yeah so that's i think that's the whole journey that's the whole point of it yeah it's being yeah. able to do it under that high pressure situation yeah, no, for sure. I, I think if you get it right, it can be quite a transcendent experience, can't it? Because you're right, it's primal. And, and I wonder, I mean, look at the um, success of mixed martial arts in the world now, right? 
I mean, partly yeah. that is because of the amount of work, not, not just the UFC, I'm not suggesting that in any shape or fashion, but the amount of work they have done in um, normalizing it, right? But I also wonder yeah. if it's because as we become more digitized and we, it's a way for us to express something that, as you quite rightly said, is quite primal. That te- I mean, it's, it's, it's modern day gladiatorship, isn't it, really? This has happened through every yeah. society and generation in its form, I think. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it is really hard. And sometimes it's really unfortunate that it's moved away. We're in Expo in Syracuse, New York, about five or six years ago, and Don Fry was there. And he had a quote that kind of stuck with myself and stuck with Ensign. And he said, mixed martial arts has gone from being fighting, you know, in the, the kind of the original era, to being a sport. And now it's entertainment. So it's gone through these. Yeah, these and it, it's neither it's neither good or bad. It has both, you know, yeah. it has both some qualities to it. But it's taken because it's entertainment. A lot of that primal characteristics have been taken away from like from the fight itself. Itself. Yeah. yeah. For example, like the rule changes and like in. Japan, it's not so bad for foreigners, but in Japan, they, they can't fight with tattoos, but like those kind of things. And yeah, like it's, yeah, it's, it's not, I don't know if you can, it's not fighting like it used to be. It's, it's lost that, um, that core purity because, like, yeah. so all things. So when you transcend, I'm going to go back to the pilgrimage. It's the best way I can understand yeah. it because I haven't fought no, professionally, right? So I have to go back to the pilgrimage. So when you run yourself into the ground, so I, I did the 88 and you know, in 30 days, right? So you run yourself mm-hmm. into the ground, doing it as the old Henro did it, so living off the streets, etc. You touch something transcendent, God, light, spirits. I don't know. I, I don't know, right? And I would imagine at the rawest part of fighting you touch that too but once you start turning the pilgrimage into for example a you know a bus tour or you start turning fighting just into a sport that everyone can do that core which which needs a degree of difficulty to touch it that's gone isn't it yes yeah yeah no that's i think that's a really good analogy it's like you need that suffering to appreciate the nirvana or the weirdly you know yeah I mean, though I don't believe, I, I, I'm not a, I don't buy into, because I don't want to, I don't buy into life has to be a struggle, right? You know, we sp- you know, you spoke earlier about putting your own self-limiters. I think that mm-hmm. we can buy into life being a struggle, but I do think some of our most insightful experiences come from when it's been hard. Struggle and hardship are different things, I, I think. Mm-hmm. You think? Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I think it's that kind of that old adage that it it makes you you know the, the suffer suffering makes the victory or you know that much more the prize that much more special or yeah I think you appreciate it a lot more when you've had to work hard for it. And it needs a contextual form, doesn't it? I can only know black when white comes in the room, you know. Yeah. I can only know up because yeah. down comes. It has to have a sort of contextual seat, which is what yeah, the Buddhist the Buddhists yeah. call that. Um, pain so you can't avoid pain mm. but you can avoid suffering 
So struggle and suffering are different from pain. You know, pain is you go in, you got another woman across the cage punching maybe just as hard kicking just as hard you know choking just as hard fine that's pain but it doesn't have to be a struggle do you see it doesn't have to be suffering you can go as you've done you can embrace it and it be lifting or it can be oh i don't want to do it you know different things and i think that's down to our mindset i reckon it is i think it's down to our mindset and it's the, the pain is more physical the suffering is kind of is mental yeah, yeah. right yeah, I think because so. suffering is a state of mind, and you can, like you said, the suffering and the pain is, is two different things. So yeah. you can choose to suffer, or you can choose to work through it and build That's yourself. It. You know, build your spirit stronger. And so it is a choice. That doesn't mean we always make me. I'm still a baby in this, you know, no, in, in terms too, of right? philosophy yeah. and and trying to you know work through things myself. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah, I definitely do not get it right all the time. But it's kind of neat. For example, if I'm in a, a training session, I'm having a really hard time with something and I'm getting frustrated and I feel like I'm suffering, then I can kind of wait. I'm I'm putting this on myself. I'm yes. yeah. this is my own mind. I'm not actually my, you know, I'm fine. You're just frustrated. You just something's not working. Yeah. You know, have a drink, figure it out, keep going, kind exactly. of thing. Like reset. Yeah. yeah. You're you're absolutely right. I agree with that. I think that um Pain, pain is not up to us to choose life life does that comes in you know things go wrong people leave our lives what that's but our reaction as you say our reaction to it is a choice of whether we choose to suffer through it now that isn't of course to say to be all pollyannaish and go oh life is great oh yeah no it's oh look the house fell yeah. down Woohoo! i'm not suggesting that i'm not suggesting that. But it, <laughs> toxic positivity they call yeah, it now. yeah yeah exactly it's just annoying <laughs> yeah. it's those people you just want to slap good vibes only yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> it's not that but you're right it's a it's it is and reframing is such an important i'm writing a book at the moment my next novel is about um, young men and, and uh, suicide, actually. So it's, <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a, cloud a, cl a crowd pleaser, but it's an important book that I need to write. But my point is I about... I feel like that it's really important. I think it is. Or it's not that joyful to write. Yeah. I really want it to be yeah. quite claustrophobic on purpose yeah. because that is, is, it, is that it, experience. Is it focused on... Sorry, <laughs> kind of interested in this. is it focused on a particular like demograph or age group or just so, so weirdly, you said it's set in syracuse that's weirdly i can't believe it. you know you said oh, about wow. set in i used to teach in upstate new upstate new taught tennis there anyway no, that's another story but i um uh it's based around two friends who are university students so they're going to be 19 to 21 that young man range right um I'm picking men for, for a reason because the demographics of young men committing suicide, the numbers are just like horrific, horrific. So you can't, and uh, we just had an experience now, just like, oh my God, how does that happen? With no flags, with no flags, right? It's not like, you know, you've lived with a depressed mum all your life and you, you start to see the signs and we all know on those days to be quiet. No signs come in and, and there's, and this this lad's taking his life, right? So I want to touch on this of, of the sort of the hidden side of depression that you go from child life ending it. What, where did that come from? So yeah, yeah. It's, it's based, it's that, that demographic, yeah. I'm actually, I'm really interested to, I'll be interested to read that book too. 
So just to let you read it, no, we took a bit of a gap there because basically me and Sarah were talking about stuff we don't want you to hear. Uh, joking aside, <laughs> joking aside, I, you know, I like to run these podcasts as a chat. And there are times when um, some chatting from both of us don't need to be heard at this time. It's not our position to share that. So that's where we disappeared. But we are back in the house, British Millionaire Podcast with Sarah McCann. Sarah, go on. Where were we? I'm writing that book about depression. That's what I was saying. Yeah, writing that book. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to reading the second book. We've got the first book here. Yeah, that's the one with Ensign's Forward. And the second one is How to Be a British Millionaire. That's a good plug for my own book there. (laughs) (laughs) i ordered on amazon before the podcast so i'm i'm really looking forward to reading it's quite nice to know that you can get it there because i'm never really never really sure where it where it gets shipped to it's in various languages it's not in japanese yet but it's um no yeah it's it's coming from the mainland so oh is it it. okay yeah so it's going to be delivered in a couple weeks cool and listen we were talking about um just before we moved on to depression, we were talking about how pain and suffering is a choice, how pain is not necessarily a choice that comes where it comes from, but suffering is, and that often pain can be transcendent, which leads me on quite nicely, segues to swordsmanship work and swordsmith work about the heat of fire making a sword. Can you, I, I absolutely, everything about what you're doing with the sword, with the katana, I find fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and what you're doing? And oh, it's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I feel like a kid in a candy store, to be honest. <laughs> even, even though I'm, I'm kind of I'm living this life, and I I still find the whole process really fascinating. So obviously, when a katana sword is made, a samurai sword, um, it goes through the you know, from the, the smelting, they get the iron ore, and then it goes to the actual swordsmith. And then um, you have the people that, that build the, the handle and the, the scabbard. And where the, my trade, or what I'm, I'm training to do, is the last portion of the process, which is called the togi, or togi sheet, which means the sword polisher. So my apprenticeship is in sharpening and um, polishing katana swords. Wow. So that's kind of where I sit in the whole process. So the swordsmith, the smithing is before us. And then we kind of try and bring out that beauty and yeah. Uh, try and so my very first sword. experience with martial arts. So I was 12. Mm-hmm. My parents took me to the VNA, which is the Victorian Albert Museum in London. I remember I even had a day off school to the uh, Japan exhibition. And there was the first time I saw the old katana with the suit and i fell in love with japan martial arts ever since that kind of that's where that journey started and i've always been fascinated by the samurai sword and the whole concept of you know the spirit being embedded in it and the and the great masters in fact on the hardest path i stumbled in one of these places i stopped at i stumbled across three old guys as as drunk as you like right one of them was massive moat bloke and you know you know a fighter immediately right you look at his face and you think oh he's been in a he's been in a few and then there was <laughs> another guy who was who already passed out and they they were very welcoming and another guy who apparently had been a swordsmith for the emperor uh, and as much as my job J- japanese can understand and now these three guys again as far as i could translate um welcomed in pilgrims into their little wooden place to feed them uh, before they went off it's like one of those magic moments like, oh what an experience yeah it was cool 
It was so cool. So how long is your apprenticeship? How did you, I mean, how do you find where, how did you get into that? Who invited you? How do you even do that? Um, so there we about five, what's 2021 now? Around 2016, okay. I think it was. We had met um, my sensei. So my sensei's niece is um, somebody that really has looked after Ensign, like a, a close friend of Ensign's and really looked after him for a long time. And when, um, so I'd come to, I'd moved to Japan and they found that I was having trouble, you know, with my visa issues. Okay. Trying to stay here. Yeah. And they had kind of mentioned in passing like, oh, you know, if, if you're interested, you can study, you know, togi. You can, you can become a sword polisher. And I don't think they put too much thought in it, but they're just throwing it out there as an option. Mm. But of course, the, the kid in me, that, that, that curiosity was like, yeah. whoa, are you serious? Like, I can, what? <laughs> I kind of, whoa. Yeah. And then I went home with Ensign that night and Ensign and I were talking and I said, what an opportunity. Oh, like, like, just, like you can't imagine, right? Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we got back to them right away and said, you know, I, you know, I, it would be an honor to apprentice, yeah. you know, and you and yeah. And so my sensei lives in Kyoto and we live in um, Saitama, which is about 50 minutes northwest of Tokyo. Okay. Um, so okay. I go down to Kyoto, Kyoto regularly um, to have the, my training sessions and, and work with, with sensei. And then, so I have my own space here at the house where I, I work on my, Oh, do you? Well. I've seen some of you. There's yeah. some of the black and white photos you put. Um, I love them. They they go in my. I they, they, I nick them off there to put on my phone just as inspiration. I don't do anything with them. I just find them really. I just like that. They're just so cool. They're just so cool. You know, some shots you look at that are just very. There's one of you bowing. It's just very, very, very. It's just something. I love that whole. I love the concept of do in uh, Japan. You know the way or michi or the path of stuff. For those who are listening, so when you hear judo, karate do, aikido, do means uh, translates as two things: path. You can also call it michi or way of, which is another path, right? So, um, so for the Japanese, doing something like swordsmanship or any apprenticeship is more than the end. You're not making a sword. You are. You are. You are making a sword. But while you're doing it, and Sarah, tell me if I'm wrong, you're forging your own soul. Would that be a little bit correct, kind of, with Doe? I like that. It sounds, it's really poetic, but it's true. It's not always, it's not the outcome. Obviously, you want, you know, a beautiful outcome when you're, no. you're polishing and working with a sword, but it's the, the process in getting there. Yes. And kind of what you're learning along the way is, is what's important. It's the journey. And that's why it's like, again, like with anything that, so like with the pilgrimage, that's the same thing. It's not about temple one and temple 88. It's about mm -hmm. what happens along the way. And what we're talking about with the MMA now, if it, if it becomes too sportified, it, it, it's all about the end result. Oh, look, I've got a, you know, an unblemished record or I've got this belt. It misses the dough. So when things shift from dough to not dough, um, I think we, we lose something, I reckon. Yeah, because it, I find sometimes that's where all the, the nuggets are. They're, they're in the journey. They're in the, yeah. <laughs> the only thing we've ever got is the journey. Because as we said earlier, the, the, 
you know, the, the arrival can always be moved. The goalposts are always moving. They're going to yeah. be endless, yeah. aren't they? But we've only got this journey. Yes, absolutely. But no, the, the, the katana and the, you know, the, the togi apprenticeship has just been so neat. I just, I love it when I go down to Kyoto to do the studying with sensei. Um, a lot of the times we'll start our mornings, you know, with coffee and a little debrief on, on how, you know, my study and practice is going. Yeah. And then he's, it's, it's, um, it's a really busy trade. Is it? And I was going to ask a lot that, of how, the how many swords are being made nowadays. Is it a busy trade? Yeah. So it's not just the new swords, it's um, restoring old swords as well. And right. the upkeep also on a lot of the swords that have been passed through, you know, families and even ones from like, museums and stuff as well. Okay. So yeah, right, right. you figure there's tens of thousands of these katana swords worldwide. Amazing. And in Japan, a lot of the masters are kind of aging out. They're, they're a lot of the older generation. And because the apprenticeship takes, it can take anywhere from seven to 12-ish years. Okay. So it's definitely about the journey. What are you, 16, um, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22? You're six years in, are you? About, yes, roughly. Yeah. 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 And so it, it does take time. And a lot of the time while you're doing the, um, the apprenticeship, there's no, like, there's no income because it's studying. It's almost like being at university for, you know, for yeah. a decade. Yeah. So a lot of the younger generation aren't interested in it. Right, 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 right. Or they think it's, you know, or they think it's irrelevant. Or, but these swords, I just, I'm sorry, I geek out on this stuff because uh, you, some you of these could, swords. I could, I'm with you every second. You, no apology <laughs> yeah. on this. And, and if everyone else is, if everyone else has drifted off, unlucky because I'm having an absolute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, some of these swords have been around for hundreds of years. Yeah. And they're going, they're going to be around for hundreds of years after we're long gone. And, Things like that just blow like blow my mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. And to even and our role is to kind of keep them on that path, like keep them to kind of to preserve them. Wow. Make sure that the, the integrity of the sword is still upkept. And so it's like its spirit is kept alive and yeah. pass it on to the next generation. And it's just such a privilege to be part of that that sword's journey. And like you said, the it's believed not by everyone, but well, my sensei certainly believes that that the swords do have a spirit. Yeah, yeah. So we treat them, you know, like like people. We treat them with respect. They're they're inanimate objects, but they do have a soul to them. Yeah. And yeah, the yeah the sword I'm like always working on for for practicing different techniques is like uh, just over four hundred years old. Wow. Just, that's that's mine. mine. Does it, do you ever? Yeah. Do you ever, speaking of mind monkeys, do you ever sit there doing what you're doing and then suddenly go, oh, that's 500 years old and have a small, small panic <laughs> and think, I'm done. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> all the time. Even when Sensei like, gives me a sword that he's finished, so it's kind of in its like, most beautiful condition, he'll give it to me to kind of look at and assess. I'm kind of like trying not to shake when I'm, <laughs> when I'm holding it. Wow. And yeah, it's, it's, it's so amazing. It's just... It's, and it's, I thought it was really simple. I thought it was like as simple as sharpening a kitchen knife. You know, and it's then not you actually start doing it and learning. <laughs> and now I can appreciate how difficult it is. And sometimes now when I'm watching movies and I'm watching the way some of the swords are treated, like last night, I think we watched a, a trailer for some, some movie and the person kind of like had stabbed their katana into the, 
the ground. Yeah. Oh, yeah, my no. gosh. Like, <laughs> you know how like how difficult it's going to be to repair. Like yeah. obviously it's not a real katana; it's a movie. But but a lot of those things kind of go through my mind. Now yeah, I know. And, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I find. I mean, big. I'm very jealous of that. That really everything about that story, I think, is just just remarkable. Yeah. That's absolutely... What's well, the one of the super cool things? Go sorry, no, no, no. Go. <laughs> one of the super cool things I got to learn and see and was when I was obviously in, in Kyoto, since it brings out the swords and stuff for me to look and learn. And one of the swords, it's called a naginata, which is- A naginata. A, a naginata, which is, it's a really long, almost looks like, like a feather kind of sword. I'll send you a picture. Yeah, go on. Yeah, please. Of what, what a, a naginata is. But it was actually a sword that was wielded by women. Huh. And this particular one was between eight and 1200 years old. So it's around that era. And that even obviously being female, that kind of piqued my interest. Yeah. So it was wielded by by women and by um, some monks too. So that they were wow. the you know the primary carriers of okay. this particular yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sword. So that oh, you got to send me a photo. Wow. You got to send me a photo. Amazing. Yeah. I don't amazing. have it. I don't think I have a photo of the actual one, but I'll send you what the, okay. the, oh, the oh, that, oh, yeah. looks like. Yeah. So that was a sort of carried by is. women, essentially. That was their sort and and kind of treasured by the monks, held or you know, their lineage yes. continued. That's incredible. Yes. Yeah, the whole sword story. But again, but that's that's that whole thing of of essence. I do like uh, my friend who I ran the martial arts business with at home, Jeremy, he's married to his wife's Japanese. So he's gone back to Japan to actually uh, study woodwork. But you know it's going to be that whole apprenticeship type of stuff. Yeah. Whole, so yeah. I, I find it. I just love it. I, I do love that, and I think that's what's missing from the speed of our lives. As as things move up, we're looking to become uh, end product orientated rather than just as we end up, you know, talking about just being the journey. We need to slow down, concentrate on the moment, put some essence into what we're doing. Right. We're in, yeah, we're an instant gratification generation. Mm. Mm. Like everything's available at the click of a button, but you can order groceries and food online and you can order anything from Amazon pretty much now. And like little to no effort is required and it's there right away. So mm -hmm. it's really hard to, yeah, to get away from that. I tell people go, go garden. I, I have a garden here where I grow my veggies and fruit. And that's a really good example in a simple way of experiencing that long-term gratification because you have to put an effort and it's really rewarding to be eating, you know, your own your own produce. Yeah, yeah. I've got yeah. It, my uh, about four or five episodes ago, um, and I'll, I'll send you the link of this podcast. I interviewed my best friend. Actually, that's not the reason I put it on, but my point is, he started his um, own garden. I, I'll send it to you. And just as oh, you, yeah, yeah. just as you talk about the swords, right? He talks about his produce. It's very, very inspiring. And he has got that dough in his gardening. I, I, I'll, I'll forward you the right. link when we finish on this. Yeah, yeah. I'd be keen to listen to that. Listen, now, I am very aware as I look on your clock behind you and my one here that I've taken almost an hour and a quarter of your time. I could speak to you oh, no forever, but I realise, you know, time is precious. So I just want to, a couple of things before we, we finish. I always ask my guests this, um, which is impossible. I don't expect anyone to get this right because it's a ridiculous question, a ridiculous <laughs> demand. <laughs> but anyway, um, if you could, so clearly you are 
living a life you enjoy, you love it, you're passionate about it, and it's working. Yeah, whether you're making a million, but you're making enough to keep waking up and loving what you do. Brilliant. For those who aren't, right, um, what one bit of advice could you give them? What salient bit of advice could you give them that they could go away with and think, oh, yeah, Sarah said this, and they mull it over in their mind? Just one. It's awful, isn't it? What a horrid question, but I'm doing it. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good question. Gosh, what one bit of advice for somebody that wants to to live the life, you know, wants to live that they absolutely love, that works for them, just as you are and, you know, the other guests that I interview, they live a life that you want, rather than the rather than where you were in the corporate world, right, and where mm-hmm. you are now, how can we all get there? Sit down and brainstorm, write a list, write, draw pictures, whatever, of your ideal life mm-hmm. and like no like you can be as unrealistic if you want as you want so if you want to go to the moon go to the moon but just write down like your ideal life and then kind of work off like see if there's paths see if you can see a path to that particular thing you want to do and if not if you can't see a path why can't you just start working from there and it's kind of, <laughs> oh, no, no, kind no, of cheating, good. I think, because there's so many different, yeah. there's so many, it's like a really long form answer, but just start there, start, write or draw or kind of, yeah, don't just image, don't just keep it in your head, like actually physically put it out there if you want to, I have a vision board too, so okay. I do put pictures up of things okay. that I'm working on or want to achieve just so that it's always in my, you know, in my consciousness. I like that, so daring to dream. Figure huh? out how you're going to get there. Yes, yeah. It is a good idea to dream. <laughs> but, also, but you're right as well, because as well as daring to dream, which is which which, you know, that could be a frivolous line, but it, it takes guts to dare to dream. I, I think. Yeah. It's not as easy yeah. as it seems. You could read that and or hear that and not take any notice, but daring to dream is a bloody art, I think. And yes. then, as you say, yeah. get it out of your head or your heart and yeah into the physical world, whether it be on a vision board or in your journal, you do a lot of journaling, you mentioned. I think that's good advice. We're going to have listeners scribbling furiously now. (laughs) Hopefully. Hopefully. And I don't know, tag us in there. Tag you, tag me. I want to, I want to see, I'd like, I'd love to see, I love to see other people's processes and journeys too. Yeah, let's do I think it's so neat watching people's journeys. Yeah. You guys, when you, when you scribble what you're daring to dream and you're getting out there, Tag me and Sarah in there. In the bottom of this, I'll leave our links and our Instagrams and all that sort of business. And let's um, let's do that. Yeah. Sarah McCann, I tell you, I could talk to you forever. I always have a vague, I've given up trying to predict how interviews will go. I, I try to come in <laughs> completely open. Let's see what the day brings. But I have loved every single syllable of this moment and i am incredibly grateful for your time thank you so much i appreciate you having me on and having this discussion i was just thinking even without the podcast i could sit and chat to you for a while because I, I like the way you you know i like the way we'll you have think. to do that we'll come back on another time and we'll do that that would be amazing yeah no, that'd be neat that'd be great so you guys who are listening i know i'm not even going to ask you if you enjoy that there is a, how did you not enjoy that you you know you're going to enjoy that but you know what i am going to say because I said every single episode. Share this stuff. 
not to build my platform. I could care less. I'm not being rude. It's not about building my platform. But because you know someone, something Sarah said today, you know so it's going to help someone you know who is struggling. Let me reform that phrase. You know what I mean, right? So share it with someone who's not quite living the life they want. As always, take care of yourselves. Take care of those you love. And I will see you on the next episode of the Buddhist Millionaire Podcast. Lots of love. You guys, another surprise, right? I just, we literally just shut the podcast down and Sarah's gone, I forgot something. So I'm adding a footnote. Here it is. Sarah McCann is back. Go on. Well, as of last year, um, I entered a sword into a competition and now I'm officially the first ever female foreign um, sword sharpener oh. ever. I'm so glad you added that. As a, so now when I go to my, let me, let's just rewind this, right? Today's guest is a fascinating, strong, powerful woman in every sense of the word. No, not only that, she is the first foreign, what else? Sharp, sword sharpener. That's how cool. Yeah, sword sharpener. That's incredible. See, joking aside, that is incredible. I mean, and thank I, you. As I said, I know we spoke earlier about it being tricky to uh, admit our own strengths, but you've done, so, you're doing amazing work. You are a phenomenal ambassador for women. So I don't want to embarrass you. Uh, I don't intend to, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not making fun at all, but you really are. And um, acknowledge that because yeah, that's just, that's unbelievable. That's so cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. My ego is like out here right now. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I've got training tonight and it's going to go. It's going to go <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, first liver kick and there comes the ego shrinking back. Yeah. All right, you guys, yeah. for the second time, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll see you on the next episode of the British Millionaire Podcast. Lots of love.